Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. We have breaking news tonight involving the case against Donald Trump and his alleged co-conspirators in the state of Georgia. Now, if you have been following this case, you know that former Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows has been trying to get his criminal trial moved from state court into federal court. Mr. Meadows claimed that all of the alleged criminal activity he was accused of in Fulton County, all of that was actually just part of his duties as chief of staff to the president. And since the chief of staff is a federal official, Meadows and his lawyers reason that he should be tried in federal court. Now, Meadows surprised everyone when he took the stand for over four hours last month, testifying that he never did anything in Georgia on behalf of Donald Trump personally or on behalf of Trump's presidential campaign. He said he was only ever acting in his official duties as a member of Trump's White House staff. Had Meadows succeeded in getting his case moved to federal court, it would have been a huge win for him. And it would have meant that the jury in this case would not have been selected from Fulton County, Georgia, a county that Joe Biden won overwhelmingly in 2020. But Mr. Meadows did not succeed in this effort. In his ruling, Judge Steve Jones wrote, the court concludes that Meadows has not met even the quite low threshold for removal. The judge then went on to essentially wave away Meadows' claims that he was simply carrying out his duties as chief of staff. Take this example. During his testimony, again last month, Mr. Meadows was asked about a text message he sent to a Georgia elections official in which he essentially offered to have the Trump campaign pay for part of the Georgia recount effort. Meadows wrote in that text, is there a way to speed up Fulton County's signature verification in order to have results uh, before January 6th if the Trump campaign assists financially? Now, remember, Mr. Meadows was trying to claim here that he was acting as White House chief of staff, not as a member of the Trump campaign when he sent that. On the stand, Mr. Meadows explained that text was in keeping of me trying to ask a person who should know whether it's a financial resource issue, you know, manpower issue or whatever. So I wasn't speaking on behalf of the campaign. Judge Jones found this not credible. The court determines, as a matter of fact, making a request to the Georgia Secretary of State's office regarding a possibility that the Trump campaign could provide financial resources to fund the recount effort, even if not directly on behalf of the campaign, is still campaign-related political activity. Mr. Meadows also testified about his mysterious surprise visit to the Cobb County Convention Center where Georgia officials were conducting the audit of Georgia's vote. And Mr. Meadows asserted that that, too, was somehow part of his official White House duties. This is how Mr. Meadows explained that in his testimony last month. What I did was go to the Cobb County Convention Center to look at the process that they were going through. And in doing so, was trying to, again, check that box to say, all right, Everything is being done right here. And and so if there's allegations of fraud, we need to move on to something else. 
And here's what the judge had to say about that one. The court factually finds that Meadows overseeing state election recount processes related to President Trump's reelection campaign. In other words, nice try, Mr. Meadows. That's not federal work. The ruling goes on like this with Judge Jones just not buying what Mark Meadows was selling, that his involvement in the phone call between Donald Trump and Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger was somehow federal work, that his arrangement of a call between Trump and another Georgia elections official was, again, somehow federal work, that a meeting with a Michigan state official was, again, federal work. Judge Jones was not agreeing with any of that. In fact, the only thing Mr. Meadows is accused of doing that Judge Jones finds was within his duties as chief as chief of staff was the fact that Mr. Meadows sent a text message to Republican Congressman Scott Perry. As Judge Jones writes near the end of this ruling, Meadows was required to come forward with competent proof of his factual contention that his allegations, his actions involving challenges to the outcome of the Georgia presidential election results were within his role as chief of staff. His efforts fall short. Tonight, just before we got on the air, lawyers for Mr. Meadows told the court that they plan to appeal this ruling. Joining me now are former acting U.S. Solicitor General Neil Katyal and Melissa Redmond, former prosecutor in the Fulton County DA's office and now a professor of law at the University of Georgia School of Law. Neil and Melissa, thanks for making the time. Um, Neil, I know you have some thoughts on this based on your social media activity. So let me just first ask you how strong an appeal is on this ruling. Uh, weak, very, very weak. Um, this decision by Judge Jones is 49 pages long. It's very thorough. It's not surprising in a way, Alex, because I think anyone who understands how the removal statute works knows that this motion has always been a long shot. And Meadows and Trump filed it anyway, or Meadows filed it anyway, and I suspect with Trump's blessing, because Meadows and Trump are scared of one thing, and it's not the jury. I think what you were talking about before matters, but I think the real thing is they are afraid of the American public seeing this trial play out on cameras so that the world can, the American public and the world can see it. In federal court, there are generally no cameras, which is why I think they really want this to be in federal court. But to be in federal court, as you were saying, Alex, there's got to be federal work involved. And Judge Jones meticulously, page after page, explains there ain't no federal work. The Constitution actually cuts the executive branch out, he says, of uh, decisions over election fraud when it comes to presidential elections for good reason. You don't want the president, an incumbent president, to use all of their powers in ways to try and keep themselves in office, which is what Trump and Meadows were trying to do here. Neil, just to follow up on that really quickly. So you don't think that there's a chance that the 11th Circuit, a conservative set of judges, entertains this appeal? I think, I mean, obviously anything is possible in the appellate courts, but just a strict reading of the law tells me there is no merit to this appeal. And the 11th Circuit, Alex, has historically been a place that protects federalism, protects states' rights. And one of the key moves Judge Jones made here is to say, look, if you do this, if you take this state prosecution and move it to federal court, it's the height of federal courts interfering with state powers, state mm -hmm. responsibilities, and is antithetical to what our founders designed.
Uh, Professor Redman, I got to ask, there is one part of this ruling where Judge Jones effectively concedes a point to Mark Meadows that his uh, request from Congressman Scott Perry for some contact information could possibly fall within the scope of work as a White House chief of staff. Do you think that opens the door to anything further? I know Neil is um, broadly skeptical of the the appeals process on this one, but how did you read that one concession in this ruling? I don't think it moves um, his argument forward because of the way RICO works, right? So the fact that he, that act may have been an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy is not a charge. And what Judge Jones pointed out was the gravamen of the issue is what was the conduct and was that conduct related to Meadows, um, duties as a federal officer. So the state doesn't even have to prove that text message to prove the charges against him. And I don't think, and for that reason, I don't think it will play into the appeal to the 11th Circuit. Yeah. And just for people, I mean, I actually understood that Georgia's RICO statute was broader than the federal RICO statute, but it's really clearly outlined in here that the burden of proof is way lower. And I wonder, Professor, if you could just explain that a little bit more in terms of what needs to be proven in a court of law as it concerns the sweeping conspiracy and what doesn't need to be proven. Right. So the state has to prove that the 19 individuals committed acts in furtherance of an overall, that they entered into an enterprise with a common purpose, that being to overturn or to challenge the results of the Georgia election. And that one of those conspirators committed at least two predicate acts. Um, The overt acts kind of outlined for the jury and tell the story to the jury of how they went about this enterprise and what each person's involvement was in the conspiracy. And then it lists the particular crimes that they're charged with. So there's the RICO, there's overt acts committed in furtherance of the RICO, and then there are the criminal offenses attached to that. So they have to prove that at least each defendant committed two predicate acts, and they have that list of 161 overt acts to work with. They have a lot of, in other words, D.A. Fonnie Willis has a lot to work with. Speaking of which, Neil, Mm -hmm. the fact that Mark Meadows took the stand last month, everything he said when he took the stand can be used in the criminal case. One of the things he was unable to do that the judge cited in this ruling was explain any outer limits to what would not be considered federal work, right? That basically nothing was off limits and therefore everything was fair game as as White House chief of staff. Do you think that's problematic as we head into a state criminal trial? I, I don't, Alex. So first of all, I think that the, what Meadows said and the court today's sweeping rejection of it doesn't just doom Meadows' case for removal. It dooms Donald Trump's just as much because everything Judge Jones is saying is that the president is cut out. The executive branch as a whole is cut out of policing presidential elections. And so that means when Donald Trump, if he does file a motion to remove the case to federal court, to federal court, it's going to be rejected. Now, to be sure, Judge Jones was careful at page 48. He says, look, I'm only talking about Meadows motion here. Other defendants can file their own stuff and we'll deal with it then. But there isn't a way 
to rule for Trump given this appeal, given given this decision today. And that's why I think the most important thing that needs to happen, and I think it should happen tomorrow, Alex, is that the prosecutors from Fulton County, Felony Willis, take that notice of appeal that uh, Mark Meadows has filed saying, I'm going to appeal. And tomorrow they should file something called a motion to expedite and say, look, you know, this is a case that is should be fast moving. It's a criminal case with enormous stakes. And, you know, Ken Chesbrough and Sidney Powell are going to trial on October 23rd because of their own motion. And all of this removal stuff needs to be fully decided by the Federal Court of Appeals and indeed the U.S. Supreme Court in the next couple of weeks. This should be a matter of weeks or days, not months. There's nothing to these appeals. They're simple and easy to resolve and should be done quickly. But Trump's entire motion mode has always been delay, delay, delay. We're far too late in the day for further delay. Yeah, and that would that was sort of exactly my next question, uh, Professor. Just Judge McAfee, who's the judge in Bonnie Willis's case, has expressed concern that, look, this whole appeal about getting this case thrown out of state court and put into federal court could complicate the speedy trial that's going to happen for Kenneth Chesborough and Sidney Powell. Do you th- I would assume that Fonnie Willis is going to try and get that resolved ASAP, given the concerns that have already been expressed by the judge. What's your uh, opinion on that? Well, I think the case against Cheeseboro and Powell will go forward on October 23rd. I don't see a way for these issues in the federal removal um, cases to go to be resolved in time for those defendants to be joined into the February, the October 23rd trial. Um, so I think we're looking at least at two trials, the two on October 23rd and then maybe the 17. I suspect that will be further divided. Um, at some point later. I do think she will file a motion to expedite to get this resolved as soon as possible because Judge McAfee has to make a decision of how far do we go with the federal, with the state case. There are going to be pretrial motions that have to be heard. There will likely be appeals of whatever his decisions will be on those pretrial motions. Um, So all of that still has to take place before we even get um, close to a real trial date for any of this. So he indicated that he wants to have weekly check-ins to see what the status of the pretrial motions are. And I suspect that one of those questions will be what's going on with the removal uh, appeal and what's the state position on that as it relates to whether to continue their efforts to join all of these defendants together. Yeah. And I would assume, uh, Neil, you know, given your your opinion on Donald Trump's opinion, uh, appeal to potentially get this moved into federal court, that you, your your dismissal of that notion would extend to appeals from the fake electors who want to get this moved into federal court and Jeffrey Clark, the former DOJ official who also wants to move his case into federal court. Do you think this is effectively a blanket shutdown of all of that? I do, at least with respect to anyone working in the executive branch, because the ruling at page 29 is categorical. It says, quote, the Constitution does not provide any basis for executive branch involvement with state election and post-election procedures. That's a quote from the opinion that applies to any executive branch official. You know, people like Ken Chesbrough never had a strong removal claim to begin with in the first place because they weren't even federal officials. So, you know, that's going nowhere in terms of removal. Um, But, uh, you know, to the extent executive branch officials like Mark Meadows or Jeff Clark are trying to assert this, uh, I think today's opinion by Judge Jones is really well done and will put the nail in that coffin. 
Okay. Said by Neil Cartiel and the, the <laughs> I guess, I guess, I guess we have an endpoint, perhaps. Neil Cartiel, Melissa Redmond, thank you so much for your time and expertise tonight in this breaking news environment. I appreciate it. We still have a lot more ahead tonight, including a look at just who the special grand jury down in Fulton County recommended charging in Georgia, who might have flipped on Donald Trump as a result of all that, and who came very close to being indicted. I thought it was a nice conversation. Why is the senator from South Carolina calling the secretary of state in Georgia anyway? Uh, because uh, the future of the country hangs in the balance. Does it, though? I mean, it seems yeah, like it's it pretty really, well. It really does. I think this, uh... That is next. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. We are asking that the report not be released because you having seen that report, decisions are imminent. All right. Thank you. That was Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis in January of this year, asking a judge to block the release of a report made by a special grand jury detailing indictment recommendations. Ms. Willis wanted it blocked because, in her words, charging decisions were imminent. Now, she made that request in January and she indicted last month in August. We clearly have very different definitions of the word imminent. But D.A. Willis did manage to keep the charging recommendations in that report secret until today. You might remember that after D.A. Willis's special grand jury finished its investigation, this woman, the foreperson of that special grand jury, Emily Kors, she did a bunch of TV interviews in which she sort of tiptoed around who was on the list of people that the grand jury thought D.A. Willis should indict. But Emily Clores very clearly wanted to spill the beans. So we're talking about multiple people. Yes. How long, how many people was this a long list? It's not a short list. It's not a short list. I mean, we saw 75 people and there are six pages of the report cut out. I think, if you look at the page numbers. Mm-hmm. So, it's not... So we're talking about more than a dozen people? I would say that, yes. Okay. I guess we will call that willpower. And now, today, we finally know what special grand jury four-person Emily Coors was dying to tell the world. They recommended indicting 39 people. Is it more than a dozen? I would say that, yes. Yeah, it's a whole heck of a lot more than a dozen. 
Now, I know most public analysis of D.A. Willis's decision to indict the 19 people she did indict has framed this as a sweeping indictment. But given the number of people she could have indicted, maybe it's sort of a conservative indictment, numerically speaking. Here are the 21 people that the special grand jury recommended be indicted that D.A. Willis ultimately did not indict. That's a lot of people. Among them are 10 fake electors, six lawyers and three U.S. senators. Now, one of those fake electors is the current lieutenant governor of Georgia, Burt Jones. The reason for his exclusion is likely because D.A. Willis held a fundraiser for Jones's political opponent. So the judge overseeing the case has disqualified Ms. Willis from prosecuting him. So it makes sense why Burt Jones didn't ultimately get indicted. As for the other nine fake electors, the New York Times reported in the spring that nine Georgia fake electors had taken immunity deals. They had begun cooperating with D.A. Willis's investigation. So that could explain why they did not get indicted. But what about everybody else? What about Senator Lindsey Graham? You might remember that more than a month before Trump infamously called Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and asked him to find nearly 12,000 votes, you, you might remember that in November of that same year, Lindsey Graham gave Mr. Raffensperger his own call. In that call, Mr. Raffensperger said that Senator Graham appeared to suggest that he, Raffensperger, find a way to toss illegally cast ballots, to toss legally cast ballots. At the time, Senator Graham said the characterization of his call as soliciting the secretary of state to toss ballots was ridiculous. Today, the senator put out a statement saying he just had questions and he was doing his due diligence. But as Georgia's Republican secretary of state, Brad Raffensperger, described that call, there was just an implication of look hard and see how many ballots you could throw out. By the way, all of that was publicly contemporaneously reported. And so when Senator Graham ultimately voted to acquit President Trump in his January 6th impeachment trial in the Senate, Senator Graham himself was under investigation, which is ironic, a wild conflict of interest, both. I don't know. And now we know that the special grand jury voted in favor of D.A. Willis indicting Senator Graham. So why didn't she? Why didn't she follow the grand jury's recommendation to indict Georgia Senators Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue? Or the jury's recommendation to indict Trump's former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, or Trump's political advisor, Boris Epstein, or all the rest of them. What was D.A. Willis's thought process from when the grand jury made these charging recommendations late last year to when D.A. Willis made the decision to indict just 19 people last month? We are going to get some expert help sorting through all of that coming up next. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. 
The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Today, we got our first look at the work of the Fulton County Special Grand Jury, the one that investigated Donald Trump's attempts to subvert the 2020 election in Georgia. The final report of that seven-month investigation does not provide the level of narrative detail we saw in D.A. Willis's indictment of the 19 co-defendants, but it, it does offer some new information, including the breakdown of the jury's votes on each of their recommended charges, and it also raises some pretty compelling questions, like why there are 21 people the grand jury voted to charge, but D.A. Willis chose not to charge. Joining me now is Chris Timmons, a former deputy chief assistant district attorney who has tried RICO cases in DeKalb and Cobb County, Georgia. Mr. Timmons, thanks so much for being here. I have a I have a lot of questions. I know some of them are unanswerable, but I'd love to get your expert opinion on the the eight months that separated D.A. Willis's announcement that charging decisions were imminent and her decision to actually announce those charges in August. What was happening in those intervening months? Do you do you think that perhaps the D.A. may have been working on rounding up some cooperating witnesses or flipping people who were potential co-conspirators and all this? Alex, exactly. I mean, what you're doing in between the time that the special purpose grand jury issues a report and then the resulting indictment that comes down is you're working on your case. Um, So I I think that's why they're not afraid of that October 23rd deadline. I think they're ready to go to trial. And so what you're doing is you're building, you're drafting, you're testing, you're making sure that each one of those 161 acts and furtherance of the conspiracy can be proven. Um, I've run special purpose grand juries in the past, uh, and I've taken a special purpose grand jury report and turn it into an indictment. And so it takes some time uh, from the time that you get that report to be prepared to indict and then finally be ready to go to trial. Can I ask you just in an inside baseball question on that? What is it? What goes into flipping someone in a RICO case between, you know, once you have the special purpose grand jury's um, report and before you've announced the indictment, what's the outreach like there to potential witnesses and defendants? Sure. So I mean, most of the time you're, you're dealing with, you know, folks in this particular case that would have attorneys. And so you're you're talking with their uh, attorneys and you've got a, a carrot and a stick. Your stick is that RICO carries 20 years um, and it grids out really high on the parole grid here in Georgia. What that means is uh, there's a scale of one to 10, 10 being the most serious. Those are, are cases that carry life sentences, one being really insignificant cases like a, a felony theft. The RICO grids out at a nine, which means that if you get sentenced under RICO, you're going to serve at least 40 eight months in prison, um, assuming you get a prison sentence. And so that that's a huge hammer to tell somebody that, you know, if you get five years, you're going to be doing four of them in prison. So you do a lot of talking to the attorneys. You also want to find out what you're, you're getting back. As we say here in the South, I'm originally from Ohio, but I've lived in Atlanta a long time. You don't want to buy a pig in a poke, uh, meaning you want to know what testimony you're going to get in exchange for the agreement to provide immunity. So those are all things that you're doing during that time. Well, and to that point, there are two folks who the grand jury 
jury did not, the, the special purpose grand jury recommended indicting Cleta Mitchell and Boris Epstein, names known to people who've been following this closely, people who know very much know the inner workings of the plot to swing the election. They were not indicted by D.A. Willis. Is it safe to assume that they may be cooperating witnesses at this point? I mean, it's it's dangerous to assume anything because you sure. just don't know. There, there, are no, there are a number of reasons why somebody could be left out of an indictment, one of which is that they just don't fit within the RICO scheme. Um, based on what we know outside, I don't think that's the case for these two. They would seem to be people, based on what we know, would fit within the RICO scheme. But obviously, we don't know everything, certainly not as much as the DA's office knows and certainly not as much as their attorneys know. So if I were to place a bet, I would bet that they are cooperating with the state, uh, but you just don't know for sure in this case until we get towards trial and we see them on a witness list. You see them on a witness list, it's pretty clear that they're cooperating. We should know that pretty soon because I believe discoveries do uh, fairly soon. Yeah, well, I'm, we will be trained on that. And I, I I believe that that would not be buying a pig in a poke to get Cleta Mitchell and Boris Epstein to be right. cooperating witnesses. But I'm from Washington, D.C., not Ohio or Atlanta. Um, <laughs> the, 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 the special purpose grand jury recommending the indictment of at the time, well, formerly sitting Georgia senators, Kelly Leffler and Dave Perdue. How unusual is that in in sort of Georgia uh, law circles in, in criminal cases down in, in your state? I mean, so we, we broke some records uh, when they indicted a former president of the United States. Yes. So that, that's kind of set the bar. Uh, but, you know, going after United States senators is, is huge as well. We've had some cases where uh, local officials have been gone after. We had one case in DeKalb County where I was a prosecutor before my time uh, where the, the incumbent sheriff assassinated the sheriff-elect. Um, and then there were other cases where we've gone after uh, other public officials, some of which I was involved in, uh, but nothing nearly the size of this. I mean, you know, it would be massive if they just indicted the uh, the, the three senators. Uh, but adding the former president of the United States on top of that is, is huge. I mean, I, again, I think it's been said over and over again by pretty much everyone who's analyzing this case, we are in uncharted waters. Yeah, I do wonder about the fake electors. We know that there were 16 of them, Georgia, uh, the state DA Willis charged only three. Ten were listed in the grand jury's suggested list of indict, uh, indictments, um, but three are not included either in the report or Fonnie Willis's indictment. I, I know that that's a lot of math, but for those fake electors that we know <laughs> of that weren't in either the report or the indictment, does that tell you anything? Again, I'm not trying to use the assume word, but what should we glean right. from that? I mean, I, I think, but I'm not sure. Again, we, we've got to be careful. I, I hate doing the lawyer thing, Alex. No, where we I, I think you're right time. to be cautious. You're right to be cautious. <laughs> Uh, but but I, I think, you know, based on some motions that were filed to disqualify counsel um, on the grounds that deals were offered to some of the electors and not to others, I think it would it would based on that. I, I think it is probably safe to assume that some of the electors took a deal with the state. Um, again, it's likely. But until we see the witness list that comes out from the district attorney's office or the state, we just won't know. Um, so, again, we've got to, We've got to be cautious when we're suggesting that people took a deal from the state. I don't want to impugn uh, negative you know, uh, 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 actions in, uh, onto them um, when they may not necessarily be there. And I appreciate the discretion there. I, I think what's important and what I'm hearing from you is it's kind of like one of those things where you see a duck serenely gliding along the water, but underneath the water, the duck is paddling furiously. And those eight months, we were all wondering what's happening down in Georgia. It seems pretty clear at least from the evidence we have or the indications we have right now, that the DA's office has been working triple time 
to secure their end of this case, which is why the D.A. Willis was fine to go ahead with the speedy trial that starts October 23rd. Do you think that's an accurate assessment? Oh, I do. I mean, John Floyd's one of, uh, a good friend of mine. He's a mentor. Uh, and John and I would, would periodically meet for drinks. I didn't get to have drinks with John for a few months there. So I was pretty sure he was up to something. Uh, he was the guy that was over uh, Fonnie Willis's right shoulder when uh, the indictment came down. And, and John was most likely the, ultra, uh, the architect of the indictment, but certainly nothing went into it that was not approved by Madam DA. And it's always a team effort when you put together a 96-page uh, document. But I know that, that he was very, very busy. And I'm sure the entire team at the district attorney's office was busy as well. I mean, when you're going after the former president of the yeah. United States, you cannot make a single misstep or you're going to cause major issues for your office and possibly for the United States. Well, I'm John Floyd, the Rico guy, as we call him. Um, if he wasn't going he out for cocktails with you, Chris Timmons, we knew he was busy with something. Thanks for that little tidbit of, <laughs> Absolutely. of, of social calendar detail. Uh, Chris Timmons, thanks so much for your information, your wisdom, your expertise. I appreciate it. Thanks, Alex. It was my pleasure. Still ahead this evening, the poison, the poison that is getting peddled on Elon Musk's media platform and what it may do to a potential jury pool. That is coming up. If you are wondering, maybe you aren't, maybe you are. If you are wondering what Tucker Carlson, the disgraced former Fox News host, has been up to since his firing, I'm about to show you. But first, a warning. What you are about to hear is nonsense. His name was Larry Sinclair, and he told an amazing story. He said that in 1999, he had encountered Barack Obama in Illinois, had sex with Barack Obama, and then used cocaine with him. It turns out Larry Sinclair is still alive. He lives in Mexico. But today, he's in our studio, and we're happy to have him. Larry Sinclair, thank you so much. Okay, where do we begin with this? For starters, the man that Tucker Carlson is interviewing there is a known con man. Larry Sinclair first went public with his Barack Obama story in 2008. He held a press conference to air his allegations in front of the National Press Club. Shortly after that press conference, Mr. Sinclair was arrested by D.C. police on a warrant for theft and forgery charges. Mr. Sinclair has been charged multiple times with check and credit card fraud. Authorities say he operates under not one, not two, not three, but 13 different aliases. In 2004, he refused to show up for a court appearance, claiming he was terminally ill. He is, as you just saw, alive today, 19 years later. During his interview, Tucker Carlson tried to bolster Larry Sinclair's credibility by noting that Sinclair took a lie detector test about his alleged encounter with Barack Obama. What Tucker failed to mention there is that Larry Sinclair failed that lie detector test. But this is the kind of rot Mr. Carlson can get away with now that he broadcasts exclusively on Elon Musk's disinformation superhighway X, formerly known as Twitter. The past week has been a lesson in just how much power Elon Musk wields and how willing he is to abuse that power. Musk started this week by threatening to sue the Anti-Defamation League for defamation claiming that the group was responsible for X's significant loss in advertising revenue. In reality, it was likely Musk's decision to allow Nazis and other hateful extremists black back on the platform that actually drove advertisers away from his platform. Groups like the Anti-Defamation League 
called attention to that. And Mr. Musk is now apparently using his platform to promote far-right extremists and white nationalists who are campaigning against the ADL. That kind of poison amplified and promoted by the likes of Elon Musk is not only influencing American politics, it is tainting every aspect of American life, including the potential jury pools that will be deciding the fate of the ex-president and his co-conspirators. Simone Sanders Townsend and Michael Steele join me to talk about all of that coming up next. If you have already convinced yourself, whatever degree, that a crime did occur here in Georgia in connection with the 2020 election process, or to the contrary, if you've already convinced yourself there's no way any crime occurred in connection with the election process in 2020 in Georgia, then I'm going to ask you to include yourself in the conflict category. That was Fulton County Superior Court Judge Robert McBurney addressing prospective members of D.A. Fonnie Willis's special purpose grand jury last year. And 26 people apparently felt they had not already convinced themselves as to whether or not crimes had been committed. They thought they were neutral and they were selected for the panel and they went on to investigate and take witness testimony for several months. We now know that that special purpose grand jury recommended indictments against 39 people twice as many as were ultimately charged by D.A. Willis. But according to the newly unredacted report, every time Donald Trump's name was mentioned, there was one no vote on recommending to indict him. Every single time Donald Trump's name was mentioned. And that lone no vote could signal a problem for prosecutors now that Trump has been indicted and a jury will have to be selected. Joining me now is Michael Steele, MSNBC political analyst and former RNC chair, and Simone Sanders Townsend, former senior advisor to Vice President Harris, and of course, the host of Simone here on MSNBC. It's great to have you here, my friend. Simone, this one, one juror, each and every time Trump's name is mentioned, does not find a reason to indict him. You could look at that as, you know, glass half full, I suppose, <laughs> that it was just one juror, but, you know, they need a unanimous vote on, on convicting Trump. And... Fulton County is deep blue. Biden won it by 46 percent. And even there, there is one person who is resolutely, decidedly, defiantly pro-Trump against all the evidence that is being presented. Well, are they pro-Trump or do they just not believe the sure. details set before them? This is the challenge for District Attorney Fonnie Willis. And uh, frankly, I think it's why it took you know, she took the time and her team took the time to come to the number of people and whom which they were going to charge mm -hmm. within this RICO because they saw how the special grand jury played out. Uh, look, I think what's really important here is that Donald Trump at every single case here is going to be uh, these grand juries. He has been convicted by in the grand juries, at least the grand juries have seen enough to say, hey, I think charge go ahead and charge him by a jury of his peers. These are regular Americans yeah. who sat around the table and said, this is not right. There is some there there. I believe you, uh, Jack Smith. I believe you, Fonnie Willis. I believe you, Alvin Bragg. It's going to be very important that when it comes to particularly in Georgia, mm -hmm. that Fonnie Willis and her team are able to make their case clearly. And the difference here is it's going to be televised. So we'll all be able to see it. Yeah. I do wonder, Michael Steele, when you talk about the jury selection process, <laughs> I'm I'm our pre, I'm I'm prematurely nervous about it, uh, given, again, the fact that she would have to secure a unanimous conviction 
And when you look at Republican attitudes towards Donald Trump, as this process, as the evidence has been reported out, as we've seen more allegations come forward and, and, and come forward and indictments come forward, the Republican support for Donald Trump increases. See CBS poll, August 2023, 77% of Republicans believe the Georgia indictment is politically motivated. There are inevitably going to be some Republicans on in that jury. Yes, <laughs> there will be. <laughs> But I suppose, I mean, and that is the problem. I mean, look, it's it's a challenge because when you are resolute in a conviction uh, that someone is is not culpable of the crimes that are being uh, alleged, um, it makes it uh, to Simone's point, it makes it very challenging for the D.A. Uh, to put together the kind of jury pool that it will will work in a way that they can avoid the reasonable doubt. Here's the problem. The problem is that the Republicans have been seeding these jurors for a long time now. And and so, you know, with every eruption um, from Republicans around the country, pick a topic. It further cements a thinking, a mindset inside the body politic, yes, but more importantly, inside growing number of jury pools, given the, the four states that are involved um, in uh, the judicial process right now with Trump, um, to be able to put together 12 men and women who objectively look at the facts and decide guilt or innocence. You rightly point out here that one juror resolutely, every time Trump's name was mentioned, said no. Yeah. So extrapolate that out uh, across the country um, uh, in, in these other cases, rather. And therein lies the problem for Jack Smith, Fonnie Willis, uh, you know, Bragg and others. No, you wanted to make a point. I think you wanted to make a point here. Yeah, I think this is why jury selection on March 4th with the trial in Washington, D.C., Judge Tanya Chetkin is going to be very important. Jury selection is no small potatoes. OK, I'm not a lawyer, Alex. Neither am I. I so did intern for the lawyers for a very long time and worked with the lawyers throughout my career. And I've sat through a number of jury selections. It's intense. It's meticulous. And it's for the very reasons that the chairman is laying out, because the, the jurors that you put in that jury box, those are the people that can make or break your case. Yeah. But I would also say, and they are going to be up against not just Donald Trump, but the right wing misinformation ecosystem that is has shown no compunction about spewing lies. We, before we came into the segment, we played a video of Tucker Carlson having a known con man on X, the former Twitter platform, mm-hmm. spinning lies about Barack Obama. Barack Obama no longer president, but literally still riding that same old hobby horse of racism and and everything else to malign a former Democrat just for the sake of stoking a, 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 a grievance, anger, uh, retribution against someone who actually has no bearing on on Republican politics anymore. What has happened to the GOP in the in the in the Trump years and post Trump years? It is unrecognizable in a lot of ways. Absolutely. And I think this is why we talk about threat to our <laughs> democracy. We need two strong, at least two strong political parties in this country. You know, I worked in Democratic politics for a very long time, but I don't believe that everybody should be a Democrat. I, we need Republicans. We need independents. We need folks who are willing to stand on the side of truth and what's right. And when you have one political party who has, you know, bent the knee, if you will, to the lies and the, you know, the tyrant and the dictator, the, the would-be dictator that is Donald Trump, 
Okay, I I think there are very real concerns, but the reality is it's bigger than Trump because you could take him off the table tomorrow. the party would still have the problem that it currently has. Michael Steele, I mean, and, and it doesn't, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. Elon Musk is out there with his own platform, Tucker Carlson is replatformed. What happens now? Oh, hell no. They shot the genie a long time ago. <laughs> they can't put a genie back in a the bottle. They, no, they, they, they did to the genie what they wanted to do to Mike Pence. <laughs> they hung his ass. That's what they did. They made it very clear the direction they wanted to go in. There's no doubt here. And here's here's an interesting thing that I've, I've thought about over the last few weeks, watching these trials begin to go through their process. The delay is not going to necessarily be with the with the moves by Republicans and Trump and others to push back the calendar. That jury process could take a while. If these if these prosecutors do their homework and their due diligence, the kinds of questions they need to ask, they could it'd be very hard to find someone to sit on that uh, jury uh, sooner rather than later. It's going to be very, very hard to do. All right. Well, listen, we still have a couple weeks to go. <laughs> Michael Steele and Simone Sanders Townsend. Wonderful friends to close this week out. Simone is going to be right back here in an hour to host the 11th hour. And of course, you can always catch her on her very own show, Simone, every weekend at 4 p.m. right here on MSNBC. I owe you guys. Thank you. And thank you for using those fabulous genie metaphors, Chairman Steele. That is our show for tonight. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.